Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Most organizations have access to incredibly powerful technologies, but struggle to use them to their full potential. Bent Ear's team of experienced technology and operations professionals systematically help organizations get the most out of the technology they already own. You can find them at www.bentearsolutions.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. I'm Eric Holdeman, your podcast host. In today's podcast, we are going to explore the role and function of maritime pilots. No, these men and women don't fly airplanes. They pilot ships into our nation's ports. My guest is Eric von Branfeld, a Puget Sound pilot and experienced mariner. Well, we got two Eric's going here, but so Eric, welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. Eric, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. And um, it's great to have you uh, today. And we're actually doing this by phone on Eric's side because he's a working pilot. And uh, Eric, I always like to ask my guests to give their own quick bio of how their career has played out and what was your journey to become a maritime pilot. Well, yeah, it started, uh, you know, as a kid, I was always interested in being on the water. Um, spent the summers over on Vashon Island, uh, mess, mucking around in boats and uh, sailing small boats and rowing. And uh, just generally loved being on the water, bought boats and fixed them up and rolled them over and bought bigger ones. And once I learned to sail, I just really had an attachment to being on the water. And then as I got older, um, didn't really see myself in a nine to five job working on a pile driving crew building docks in Lake Washington and they had an old wooden tug and um, got to take the tow the pile driver to the to the jobs uh, everybody else wanted to go home and uh, I'm like wow having the opportunity to tow this thing across the lake on a beautiful day seems like a pretty good gig so um, started then in uh, 1977, towing a pile driver around Lake Washington, and we eventually towed out into the Sound where I saw other tugboats that were made of steel and decided that's where I needed to go. I never even went back to my senior year, basically, of high school. I just went right to work to uh, to try and attain a, a job as a deckhand on a tugboat, and that's where I kind of went from there. And once on the tugs, I saw that there was a guy up there who uh, was piloting the ships in from uh, Port Angeles getting off when they got tied up and going home. And since we spent a lot of time on the tug, basically tug work is two weeks on and off or sometimes more than that. And it just seemed like a great career um, because you get to do the the fun stuff, the landing of the vessel and the, you know, the close quarters ship handling, which I enjoyed. So uh, I just, pursued that until I became a pilot in 1995 and I've been one since then 
and it's been a great career. Okay. Well, um, you know, you're part of the Puget Sound Pilots. How are pilot organizations organized? Are they organized by port? Um, I think about like the Suez Canal has to have pilots. Uh, I'm thinking of Los Angeles, Long Beach ports. Um, down there, do the same pilots do both ports since they're side by side? How, how would give us a, a bigger picture of pilot organizations internationally and then here in the United States? Yes, that's a very interesting question. And, and uh, there are different, uh, excuse me, there are different models uh, of pilotage around the world. There's uh, what Puget Sound is a state regulated pilotage. Um, the first Congress gave the states the ability to regulate their waters with pilotage in order to make sure that somebody didn't come in and close their port by having a wreck. They wanted to make sure that they had a person that was accountable and beholden to the port's interests and the people of the state's interest beyond the economic interest or lack thereof of the ship that is coming in and possibly, you know, um, causing damage or, or pollution. And so, um, and it, it makes sense in other ways too, that to have someone who all they do is uh, come in and out of that port um, operate the vessel in that area where they have expertise and awareness of all the possible dangers to to take over and do that. Uh, ship handling is a different skill set than a captain that might take a ship across the ocean where when a ship is uh, going across the ocean, they have uh, weather concerns and cargo and crew and the vessel itself. Uh, a ship handling concern is only something that you have when you're approaching the the dock and in the last you know one percent of the voyage so um they're set up different ways uh, la long beach is two different one's a private the jacobson pilots handle the long beach and the city of los angeles uh they they hire or they they are the uh the city workers are what the pilots are there oh and okay. so um in San Francisco, it's a state pilotage group like ours, which is a, an association that's licensed by the state. You know, there's like a board of pilotage commission here in Washington, as well as in California that handles uh, the testing process and sort of the adjudication of any incidents. And so that's that's sort of how that works. Uh, in Singapore, you know, it's a state run, sort of like a city pilot, but it's a government run one. And... Um, they're different all around the world. Uh, the associations that we have here on the West Coast include uh, Columbia River Bar, Columbia River Pilots, and there's a few, uh, you know, there's Coos Bay Pilots. And here on our own state, there's a uh, port-owned pilot, and that is the Grays Harbor Pilot Group. So it's, okay. it's, it's hard to really nail down a particular model, but... But they're all sort of similar in that. Um, well, I, that's how they operate. U.S. Canal must have their own pilots, right? Yeah, they've got their own pilots, and so does the uh, so does the Panama Canal. They've got their own pilots. Um, that's how that works. Okay. Well, how many pilots are there in your Puget Sound 
pilots. There's fifty-four in. pilots here in Puget Sound. 54. Okay, how many? Um, we're we're short pilots. We're it takes a long time to become a pilot here. Um, you have to qualify to take the test by having a, a, at least one or two years, depending on the size of the vessel, as a master, and then you um, qualify to take the test that's given. Well, every there's one coming up in next spring. Um, so if you have the master's time, uh, you sit for this examination as you do on the written part of it. You qualify. You meet a cut score, then you qualify to and then do a simulator test. Okay, and how many pilots? There's highly there scrutinized are? test that you have to run through. Fifty-four. Fifty-four. Okay. Yeah, and 54. it's uh, yeah, yeah. It used to be you had to me memorize the charts for Puget Sound. Is that still the case? That's correct. Um, to take the test to get in you don't need to do that any longer to get that's what's called the pilotage the, the u.s coast guard certificate of pilotage here unlimited pilotage includes drawing 26 charts where you fill in a blank chart that is just the outline of land navigation the uh, names of the points and you gotta put the depths in there and shaded areas that and have them curve and there's a lot you need to put in there some some of them have over 40 uh individual aids that you need to have a spot on so that when they your and when you say aids you mean buoys or aids to navigation yeah all the buoys not only do you have to have the location but the you know the characteristics of them right. you have to name the rocks the points it's it's an extensive uh, it's shocking uh, and when I look at them now, I, I remember I did them, but I don't know how I did them. No, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a something you work on really hard. You develop like a muscle for it. And, and after, after doing 26 of them, you become pretty good at it. But the first few are very difficult. They're very difficult. Okay. And, you know, most of the people listening to this uh, podcast are going to be land lovers. So when you say master or master of a vessel, is is that synonymous with being a captain of the ship? that's correct yeah the captain you know is the ultimate responsibility falls on the captain on a ship uh when there's a any kind of a you know uh difficult like a maneuver it's usually the captains that's uh you know taking that doing that and then they're supported by a mate or mates and crew members but the captain is the uh you know, has the ultimate responsibility on the vessel to make sure it's done safely and without any damage. Okay. And then I I recall you, as pilots, you work two weeks on, two weeks off. Is that still the same? From yeah, it's, it's actually 15 days on, 13 days off. And that okay. gets us a little over 180 days uh, a year, which is the maritime norm is day for day. Okay. So that's, what, that's how we do that. We end up working... Uh, three days in the winter or the summer during the busy season around the peak periods. But generally that's what everybody in the U S the Mariners, that's why they go to work. They work for two weeks and, and they're, you know, pretty much working any time of the day or night on call at a moment's notice. So uh, your family life would suffer. Everything would suffer if you were, you know, just never had a break. So in order to sort of maintain your, your life, 
uh, you you're rewarded with this other two weeks where you're not uh, disrupted every time you do something. Okay. So I, explain for our audience when and how, where do you meet ships coming into Puget Sound ports? Um, okay, so our Puget Sound pilot station is um, out here now. It's on, on the end of Edis Hook in Port Angeles. Uh, it's located about 60 miles northwest of Seattle on the Straits of Juan de Fuca, across from Victoria. And ships can generally, like I was mentioned before, they can find their way here pretty easily. Captains are good uh, to do that. There's only a couple of course changes they need to make in the Straits to get here. And then once they come in here, they board, we board them while they're underway, about 10 knots. We climb up a rope and wooden ladder called the Jacob's Ladder. Uh, that's kind of a, that can be a difficult process for in storms when the when the pilot boat is small and the ship is large it it goes up and down and and sadly that process that exchange of the pilot to a ship uh costs at least one mariner a pilot their lives almost every year this year it's been three uh, around the world but it's a it's a process that hasn't seen a lot of uh safety progress you know from the wooden ladder since its inception so uh that's one of the dangers of piloting is is in getting on and off the vessels without falling in and um, end up, uh, you know, either crushed by the pilot boat or going through the vessel's propeller, uh, which is a horrific, you know, horrific death. So, yeah. um, like, I'd like to say you're doing this underway. So I can see the ship coming in. Uh, it's night or day, right? Oh, yeah. We board, we board ships 24-7. That's what trade and commerce are here 24-7. And of the 35,000 ships that ply the world's waters, the world's oceans, uh, they all have a very similar expectation for what's supposed to be done with the pilot ladder or gangway with the combination ladder. You don't usually climb any more than 30 feet up until you make a transition to a companionway or gangway. Um, and that in itself can be a, a risky maneuver if you have to go through a hatch or something or if there's you know considerable wind and weather and waves and right. freezing but that's that's the dangerous part of the job um it's easier obviously to climb up for me uh because you can always see you know when you're going up and down with the waves compared to what the ship's doing to get off at the top and and cling to the ladder and then climb up but but like anything when you're climbing down you know you kind of have to look over your shoulder and you're managing you know what when the vessel's at, at its peak rise that you're climbing onto and there's help from the boatmen that are on a pilot boat to assist you in that exchange, but it can be uh, it can be pretty wild sometimes, and that's what that's what keeps a lot of mariners from making the the jump, if you will, to becoming a pilot is is just they don't want to have to climb a ladder to go to work every day. Yeah. Well, you gotta be physically able to, to yeah, do that you gotta under be pretty any conditions, yeah. right? So that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, the pilot boat—that's a dedicated uh, boat owned and operated by the Pilots Association, right? That's correct. Yeah, we've got two seventy-foot boats that are identical. Uh, they got uh, two thousand horsepower, you know, a thousand aside Hamilton jet water jet engines. Uh, they're a safety platform for boarding ships. They have a man overboard retrieval system that's you know unparalleled in the world. This is unbelievable. Pilots uh, have come from all over the world to to see the design of this boat. It 
it has a passive ballast system. So when it slows down, uh, water's taken into these tanks that give it some stability when you're alongside the ship because the ship's usually in a turn to give you some protection from the waves. Okay. Uh, the pilot boat operator will tell uh, the ship to take a particular heading to make for the food, the smoothest transition. And when you're doing that and you're alongside, uh, the vessel would tend to roll. Our old, our old pilot boats tended to roll over because they're pretty hard chine. This is more of a flat bottom. And so it skids uh, in that more stable and flat mode uh, because of the ballasting and the design. They did a lot of water tank testing and uh, came up with this. And they're 20 years old. They're well taken care of. Um, probably wouldn't be bad to get, you know, on the design stage of some newer ones. We were looking at, at developing a, a battery boat, a zero emission boat until COVID came and that kind of got set back. But um, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're among the nicest uh, in the world here in Puget Sound. I'll tell you that. Okay. So uh, you pick up the boat there around Port Angeles, you take it into any one of the Puget Sound ports uh, to dock. Do you stick with that ship until it goes back out or do you transition to another ship that's going out immediately, perhaps? We um, we have uh, our average assignment takes about five hours, um, maybe seven when it comes to transportation home. Uh, pilots live all over the district, which is good because if there's an emergency need for a pilot in any of the waters that are associated with our district, we generally have a pilot that's within an hour of that that they can respond to a dragging anchor or a, you know, a tsunami or any of the threats that we have. Mostly it's dragging anchors due to wind or too much wind for the vessel to remain alongside the dock. So what we'll do is we'll get on the ship out here at Port Angeles. We'll We'll go to any of the ports that are east of here, whether it's up north where the, where the refineries are or down to the container berths or, you know, any of the bulk carriers or cruise berths. We, we have a most unusual thing about our district is uh, we're not number one in any kind of traffic as far as the ships are concerned. We're, we're number three in about everything. We do a lot of tanker work. We do a lot of cruise ship uh container ship, auto carrier, roll on, roll off, bulk carriers that handle grain. So so that's what I really like about being a pilot here in this district is you never know day to day what you're going to do uh, and the variation of it all, whether it's loaded or light, you know, whether they're empty or loaded makes a difference in how they handle. And so it, it you become a, a pretty darn good ship handler by the time you've been at it for a while. And that, that's just, there's a lot of uh, satisfaction and in being able to maneuver these ships in tight places. That's another thing. The ships have grown exponentially uh, in yep, size, but yet the port has stayed the same. And we're going we're gonna to talk some of that ourselves okay. in the show. So we, we get into the dock, we tie up the ship, and then we get off and we, we go home and we get a, a rest period. Uh, we get a certain amount of transportation time to get home, and then we get a 10-hour rest interval uh, okay. to go to be rested to go back out. And then you take a ship from one of the ports back out to Port Angeles. Yeah, generally, sometimes if there's an imbalance of traffic, we'll uh, we'll have to come back out to Port Angeles, okay, and then bring another ship in okay. if there's you know more imbalance and outbounds. All right, and uh, you drive out there, or, or the boat comes take you out there. No, there's various ways out here. Um, we'll either either drive or fly. I mean, occasionally um, it's better to fly. 
Okay. Uh, sometimes it's it's better to drive. We've got uh, car services, all those things that that you would imagine you'd have to do when you're moving personnel okay. in a an area our size. We're that's another thing. We're one of the largest size areas. You know, aside from like Alaska or or you know British Columbia, you know, or Maryland, where our district is really big. So moving yeah. around is a challenge. Yeah, huge, huge. Well, that's been great, uh, Eric. What I'd like to do is take a, a quick break now from and hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with you. So stand by. Most organizations have access to incredibly powerful technologies, but struggle to use them to their full potential. Bent Ears team of experienced technology and operations professionals systematically help organizations get the most out of the technology they already own. You can find them at www.bentearsolutions.com. And we are back and we're talking with uh, Captain Eric von Brandfeld, the uh, Puget Sound pilot, talking about what it means to be a, a pilot, bringing in some extremely large ships uh, into various ports. And we, you talked about this a little bit already, um, the path, you know, it's not easy becoming one There's physically demanding. Are there different paths to becoming a pilot or you mentioned, do you have to have been a, a master or that's, that's a, a given, you know, mm-hmm. as I say, captain of a ship. Yeah, there's, there's definitely different paths and that's the strength of our organization is that we, uh, we're divided up in a number of different uh, pathways to get here. There's a there's Washington State Ferry captains that became pilots. Uh, they also, as a Washington State Ferry captain, have to have that pilotage credential for the entire sound. That's part of being a ferry and be able to run all the ferry captain and being or mate to be able to run all the different routes. So that gives them us you know somewhat of an advantage as far as having that license already before they get in here. Um, and then, you know, they pretty aware of the local waters. You can be from anywhere and have that time. So when you come here and pass a test, you can, you, you get your trips in and out, uh, on ships with us. And then you draw those charts. Once you draw the 15, once you take the 15 different round trips in and out, um, there's other, uh, tugboats. That's where, like I said, I came from, uh, we have people from the military. Um, we have, uh, a research vessel. Uh, captains that came in if you're on a really large ship an unlimited uh, size ship unlimited gross tons you only need one year as a master so um, generally a a person that becomes a pilot has been uh, almost I think the average a few years back was 20 years at sea um, before they became a pilot so you know a lot of people um, you know don't want to take that leap of faith and and work on being a pilot because they've already got a pretty good job as a captain somewhere else. Uh-huh. So that's kind of an unusual dynamic that that it's not enough for them to be a captain. Now they want to be a pilot and, and it affords them, you know, the time to be maybe a, a little bit more at home. That's been the case for me. Uh, and, I, and I was lucky uh, things fell into place. I did some crab boat fishing one year and was able to, work on as a captain at an early age the exxon valdez happened right around the time i was at the age of becoming a, a captain experience and 
So uh, there was a lot of demand for work and I was able to uh, get my time in re really quickly. And uh, mm -hmm. so I became a pilot when I was 35. So that's kind of unusual. Uh, most pilots, I think, we're having a few now that are of that age, but, you know, mostly pilots are in their 40s or late 40s before they become a pilot because it takes a long time to get that okay. sea time. And out, out, is there some record holder there based on age or number of years? I, yeah, there's Donnie Soriano, who's the senior pilot here now. I think he became a pilot when he was like 28 or 27. Really? He obviously worked uh, his way up quickly. Uh, he was with a coastal freighter, uh, probably worked, you know, 300 and some days in a row uh, many times. You know, we, we had some younger pilots that were with that Western Pioneer group, and they uh, they put in a lot of days at sea uh, because they knew, you know, that they needed to get there and qualify. Because in the old days, uh, there wasn't as many tests. People didn't leave the job as often, so people were inspired to get those days and, and get on with it. And so how many years has he been a pilot? Uh, he's probably going on like 36 years now. Okay. You know, he's, right. he's, yeah, he's getting right up there. He's right. I'm the, I'm the second most senior pilot and I'm at 28. And I think he's been here almost 33 or four or maybe okay. 35. All right. So um, I guess one of the questions, yeah, you pass all the written tests. And do you, is there such a thing as an apprentice pilot? where oh yeah. yeah yeah you have to can you take a ship into a port having not done it with another experienced no. pilot no you have you have three segments if, particularly if you haven't drawn the charts you go in as an observer you go in as an observer either way for about 300 trips total you do about 100 as an observer and you about 100 you know to all these different ports a number of different times in and out with different ships you do a hundred as a trainee where, you know, there you ask any question, you get a heavy coaching if you need it. Um, you just practice at your trade and your skill. And then the last hundred or so um, is done without any input and you get a pretty, pretty heavy grading and, um, and you can't um, have somebody need to take over the ship from you, the con, they call it the conduct of the vessel. You can't be removed from the con more than three or four times uh, before you get washed out of the system. And okay. about 10% of the people do after they go through all that hard work, about 10% fail to okay. become licensed. Once you get to the practical side of it. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's it takes a lot of timing and you yeah. got to be ahead of the ship and, and some people uh, just have a really hard time with it. And okay. uh, we, we can't have people that um, aren't catching on. And if they, they make a mistake. It's going to cause, we have a, we have an incredibly good safety record here. And, you know, we are beholden to the people of the state of Washington to mitigate the threat that these ships pose to our environment and our infrastructure. And so uh, we're extremely focused on making sure we have the right people doing it. Okay. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned here, we started the second half about uh, the size of cargo ships and how that's evolved in, say, the last 20 years. It's, I've worked at the Port of Tacoma for four years, but that's been now 10 years since I was there. And I remember a large ship when I started was like 12,000. And then as I was leaving, uh, they were jumping up to like 18,000 TEUs, um, 
to gain a container equivalents, 20 foot containers. And now I, uh, what's the largest ship coming into Puget Sound? You know, 18 is, is I mean, I think we're going to have one here for 23,000 pretty soon. 18 is, you know, that's on the high side. We don't get as many of those, but it's routinely, uh, you know, 8 to 10 to 12 to 14 to 16,000 TEU ships. And, and they're just incredibly huge, you know. Do you remember those Maersk ships that used to go into the Spitcom waterway there at APM? Yeah, little. Uh, they were 1,200 feet long and, you know, maybe 100 and something wide. Well, now we're getting them that are a little over 1,200 feet long and that are the one I had out today was 167 feet wide. Yeah. And I it takes quite a while just to walk across the ship from one side to the other. And, and you know that the waterways have not expanded much, especially – you know, in depth, especially. So we're taking these ships in with, with a very small amount of under keel clearance and that, and ships handle funny in shallow water. They, they don't, they don't do normal things. They stop at a much, you know, slower rate. They, they, they move around strangely. They, they take a lot of, a lot of horsing around. You got to maintain some water going by the rudder, but at the same time, their slowest speeds are, about seven knots you can't be doing seven knots so you have to have a big tug on the stern retarding the speed so that you can have the maneuverability of the rudder but without the speed of the of the you know propeller turning and then you know tacoma itself is a is set up where the wind is cross purposes to the waterway so you have a beam wind which means you know you it's like doing a crosswind landing on an airplane but the ship can't change azimuth. So you have to use the tugs and the forces that you are able to control, which is the ballast thruster and the tugs and the rudder to overcome the forces you can't control. That is the wind. And it can be gusty and it can be shaded by other vessels that mean you have to bring those components of thrust in um, at different times, depending on whether the wind is shaded or not. Yeah. There's yeah. surface friction that causes it to a bait at times and it's it's a real challenge yeah and it, it, it's uh I, the way you describe it there's an art to it right that's the art. yeah and nobody does it the same way um most of us get the same results but uh you know it's it's interesting we always ask the captain you know because we get on board and do a little exchange of information to make sure we got all the destination for one thing right and then you know all the components of the ship find where they are and the different power settings and all those things. And it takes a little time. And then one of the key questions is if they've ever been there or not. And if they haven't been there, you almost have to warn them when you get down there that the ship will actually fit in that waterway. And, and most of them say this is the most challenging assignment that they go on the West coast. Uh, LA long beach, you know, they do that pretty regularly and that's, they take some big ships in some small spaces there. Uh, but they don't have the the environmental elements that we do here, and they don't they don't back those ships two miles up the waterway like we do here, and they don't they don't have the weather that we do have that we have here. So um, it, it's uh, it's a really rewarding experience to do well, and it's it's uh, something that'll really get your attention when you're doing. It. it takes a lot of a lot of orders and a lot of experience to do it well. Okay, so. Um... One of the things uh, I'm trying, I, I thought of another question while you were talking there, but uh, I'm going to let that go. Okay. 
How's the responsibility for navigating the ship pass between the captain of the ship to the pilot and vice versa? I, I'm sure you guys, pilots, have all seen the movie Greyhound. Um, that is uh, Tom Cruise, pilot, and he's on a destroyer taking convoy of ships across the Atlantic in World War II. And, that, and you know, the captain comes on deck and, and, you know, he says, I've got the con and announces, hey, the captain has a con. I would assume that you come on board and at some point the captain says to you, the pilot has a con. How's, how's that work? Yeah, that's I was I, re, I was referring to that a little bit earlier with the master pilot exchange when you sort of your 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 destinies are joined there, right? Like you want things to turn out the best. Uh, if they don't, you both are going down in flames. Uh, they're going to end <laughs> yeah. up in a goo a gulag somewhere in the Soviet Union, uh, or you know worse. Um, and and we are an advisor to the captain. At any point, if they don't feel comfortable, uh, it's done almost very rarely. Uh, they voice their concerns about things at times, but it's it's almost never done that they would take the command of the ship back. It's the conduct of the ship, as I was saying. So what happens is we go through all the master pilot exchange and and then we find out, you know, and then we give them when we give them that initial course and we say, I have the con, that's when we legally have the con. And so that's a kind of a formal arrangement that's agreed upon after we've done our master pilot exchange. And and there's no further questions for either one of us, even though all the whole way down the, the sound or the whole way to our destination, you know, it's a collaborative uh, uh, arrangement with the crew and the and the captain and and the mates and that team, the bridge team. Uh, they're there to support the cat, the pilot in the in the decision making. But, um, you know, ultimately the pilots done it so many times, has all this awareness about it and um and you know it usually goes uh, along those lines that the con is exchanged and then it's given up when we're tied to the dock okay all right and you know if anybody's I, i've rode in quite a few helicopters with uh, pilot co-pilot and as they transfer between the two that they'd say i've got the stick you've got the stick that's how that exchange it's, works that's, yeah it's it's similar to that but it's only really done one time on yeah, the initial right. on the onset of the voyage yeah. out here wherever you are okay um you mentioned this a little bit already about puget sound and the the challenges of weather i, I would think wind because these are huge ships i, I just remember what i was going to say it, you know, we always think of battleships as being big or aircraft carriers being huge. Folks, just go Google probably size of a container ship, and a lot of times they'll profile it with an aircraft carrier or the Titanic. And these big ships that um, uh, the, uh, Eric has been talking about just dwarf those in size. I mean, dwarf modern aircraft carriers. They, they look puny compared to these ships i don't know anything yeah there's a great there's a great picture about uh the uh, benjamin franklin the cma cgm benjamin franklin came in here it's eighteen thousand tu ship and uh it was right next to the largest ferry there was a picture of it coming out of of seattle and the ferry was passing the stern of it and it's astonishing how small the ferries are you know i was able to i was lucky enough to have one of my life 
favorite assignments of all time was taking the battleship Missouri when it left Bremerton and take, and it was under tow and we took it from Bremerton and towed it out to restoration point where it was towed down to the Columbia river and then on to Pearl Harbor uh, where yeah. it's sailed today. And I remember, you know, thinking, wow, this is, this is a big ship, but I was shocked at how light it was, even though it was a, it was a you know, pretty large ship. Uh, they just don't have the draft, you know, we're getting, uh, vessels that have a 14 meter draft, you know, uh, which is, you know, extremely deep and, um, and heavy. And, and now, you know, most of the cruise ships, they're big and everything, but they only have about, you know, they're only drawn about 24 feet, 28 feet, something like that, which, you know, we're, we're getting ships with these 14 meter drafts that are, you know, in the high forties and close to 50 feet. And that's all the water that we have. Yeah, um, that's right. down there in the in the Blair Waterway. So we have to be tidal conscious. And there's places in the North Sound where we only have four feet of UKC and loaded tankers. So, so you, those you, are challenges. You still sail with the tide. More, you know, more often than not, that's a big part of the calculation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I have to ask you about the Suez Canal. There's that huge ship that got stuck. Um, that that might be one of those pilots that showed uh, was in the uh, Soviet Gulag. I don't know. Do, do you know any details on that? Because people would remember that. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was done in a period of high wind and poor visibility. Um, they have normally, like I was talking about, how the tug is tethered to the stern by a line and is retarding the speed so that they can maintain some directional stability with the rudder you know, so you can move the, the vessel, you know, around without gaining speed. Um, they chose to take that trip without the, the tethered tug. And, and they had to have, uh, there was so much wind to mitigate the wind. They had to take a heading that was sort of creating a real um, difficult angle uh, within the curve of that channel. And, you know, they built up so much speed and made so many corrections and, there's a an element to handling ships, a hydraulic element, a water hydraulic element to handling ships where the propeller will suck the water away from the closest shore and therefore it'll pull the stern towards that shore. And at the same time, the bow, the cushion of the water and between the, the break of the bow where it's like a wedge will also force it away. So it, it sort of starts to go back and forth and oscillate in shallow water and they built up enough speed to where they couldn't sort of mitigate the oscillation and just planted that thing in the shallow water. Uh, and it, yeah, it went aground really hard and, um, the, the rest to, is known. They had, they had to call a really big tow truck on that sucker. Yeah. They had to do some digging. They had to get that out, but yeah, yeah that, that was a, you know, that it was interesting because it was right in the middle of a supply chain, you know, right. shortage and that really highlighted it. There's, I'm sure those lawyers are going to make a living off the lawsuits that just that that created forever, forever. Um. So, um. Oh, I just went on battery saver, which is never a good thing to do. So I'm going to, have to plug in here. But how about talking about uh, how you feel about all the technological changes that have come about, moving from paper charts to digital maps? Are there risk factors there? Any other technology changes or challenges? You know, uh, the paper charts, I'm an old school guy. I, I, I still like having those and 
touching them and pointing around to them and folding them up. Uh, the the Actus, you know, the the charts that are electronic, they have they they're nice in some ways um, because they're updated all the time, and they they bring some properties to them that are that help that are helpful. Uh, there's some huge annoyances to those charts. Uh, if you get out of a corridor that they had planned that, you know, is is not even maybe something that you're even entertaining the idea of doing, there's a constant alarm that goes off uh, if that happens or if there's more vessels in the AIS, the, you know, automated, you know, identification system that other, that vessels send out like a beacon and it shows up on the chart. If sometimes in some of those ectuses, there'll be more than a hundred which triggers an alarm itself, which runs continuously. Uh, it's very annoying. I, I pointed those alarms out to uh, people on the bridge and said, is there a way we can silence this? And they, they say, I don't hear anything. And I'm like, that is going off right now. You hear that? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah I, didn't, I don't hear that anymore. It's been going off since Unimac passed. Or, you know, I mean, yeah. so there's, there's some annoyances there. Um, there's also other things. Those AIS targets are really nice to be able to call out by name especially if it's a recreational boater that's, you know, oblivious to the size and speed of these ships and we can come up a stern of them. And uh, if they're lingering in the traffic lanes where they don't have the, the right of way anymore, if they're less than 20 meters, they're, they're venturing out there on the freeway at their own peril. As far as the rules of the road are concerned, uh, it's nice to be able to call them by name and tell them to turn the Van Halen down or whatever and get out of the way if they would, please. Yeah, I, um <laughs> So, I, I, mean, I have a story from a friend about that. They they took a summer vacation on their sailboat and just sailed through the San Juans. And, you know, they had their radio on like they're supposed to. And um, Wendy, as uh, their name, said, yeah, I heard this call. Sailboat, this is, um, damp, damp, uh, please clear a path or whatever the correct term is, sailboat. And she said, oh, I wonder if that, who is that? And turned around the big ship coming. She said, oh. Oh, that's us. Yeah, we gotta get out yeah, of the way. That that situational awareness is is key when you're on the water. You got to keep your head on a swivel, uh, yeah. and know that you know they're so big they don't look like they'd go that fast. But more often than not, you know we're moving it sometimes as fast as twenty knots. That's something that's unusual about this district as well. Is that we get up to sea speed, which is what they transit the ocean in. Uh, because we make these 90 and 60, 90 mile transits that they rely on us getting, you know, in, in a time to make it all happen and get to the dock for the longshoremen and, and the longshore workers and, and all the things that need to happen. So that's built into the system. And then we have to, uh, you know, slow down for weight control or vessel traffic. Like it's really difficult on a Sunday afternoon, leaving Elliott Bay when there's a lot of sailing traffic and we're outbound on a cruise ship. They don't want to turn those ships to a very, you know, at a rated turn that'll cause them to heel over. They ballast to keep them from healing over constantly in a turn. And they also don't want to rate a turn more than 10 degrees to keep them very level so that people can sort of gain their sea legs. Well, it just happens to coincide with the moving uh, out through all the sailboats that are coming out of Elliott Bay, Marina, and Shoshol on the early part of that voyage. Uh, it, we have to rely on the whistle, the signal, the horn. And just say, you know, hey, sizority is in play here, and uh, please be aware that we don't, we can't maneuver as easily as you can. So do your best to stay out of our way. That's that's all we can ask. Yeah, 
Yep, yep. And uh, you know, in this case, uh, size does matter. <laughs> you know, size yeah. Does matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this has been great, Erica. Any last things you'd like to share or accent an aspect of being a pilot or maritime industry? Something I didn't ask you about is greatest vulnerability within pilot operations. Yeah, I think it is that that uninformed boater that goes out there and, and doesn't have an AIS or doesn't have uh, marine traffic or any one of the apps that you can, you know, make yourself aware of the situation. Anybody that goes out with a plotter in their vessel with an autopilot that thinks they can just go point to point and not be aware of the, the vessels and go like say if they go out and reduce visibility and in bad weather, I think one of the roughest places I've ever been in my life has been out of just outside of Port Townsend where, the tide will be running one way, the wind of the other creates a really dangerous area. And so you lay fog and ships on top of that. And, um, you know, a lot of boats come back to the, to the Harbor and they're for sale instead of for sailing. So <laughs> there's that. And then there's uh, one thing that keeps me awake at night is being out here with the threat of the tsunami out here on the spit. Um, I'm always trying to figure out a way to, you know, be prepared for that. But uh, I guess sometimes you say, Eric, is that the things you worry about, if you worry about them enough, they won't happen. Uh, it's usually the things you don't worry about that get you. But uh, those are the two things that are concerns of the pilots are the small boat traffic and then uh, just the environment that we're in out here uh, and be, and maintaining the safety for everybody in it. Okay. And, and I imagine you might... I've been thinking about this all along. My my dad was a railroad engineer, worked for the Illinois Central, and he would run into Chicago, and they actually had a bunkhouse there if they weren't turning around immediately. Do you guys stay at a motel there, or do you have your own quarters? What what do you have out there? We we have a we have a station out here on the spit. Uh, it's right next to the, where the Coast Guard station is, down on the end of the spit here by the boat launch in Port Angeles at Edith Hook. And uh, it's 14 rooms. It's uh, kind of like a fire station. Uh, we come out here and uh, it's not the worst place to be. You know, like today I'm going to get a nice walk in on the beach. And uh, at low tide, I like to go on the outside there and walk outside the breakwater. It's nice sand out there. And um, it's a beautiful spot. You know, the mountains and Port Angeles is a wonderful town. And uh, there's hiking up in the hills. You know, sometimes we get some pretty good layovers. Other times, not so much. But uh, we generally have a reasonably good time out here with each other. And and uh, so, yeah, we end up in sort of a, a, a pilot stations, like, you know, kind of like a fire station. Okay. Well, I just want to highlight in the description for this podcast, be sure and look for, I, I linked an article where Eric has quoted uh, several times. The title of the article is A Disaster the Size of Multiple Katrinas is Building Off Washington's Coast. And this has to do with the Cascadia subduction earthquake and the tsunami that uh, uh, gives him pause uh, uh, from that perspective. So take time to read that. I think it's a very accurate article. And it's great to see uh, you participated in that, provide the information from a pilot standpoint, Eric. You bet. Our pleasure. You know, we, we do a lot of public outreach. Uh, you know, a lot of people that don't fit in regular working situations situations because of you know maybe they don't they're like me they don't want to do a nine-to-five job and um you know it's open to anybody being a pilot you can come here and, and if you're interested in ship handling you belong with us uh you don't have to have connections 
You don't have to have familiar connections. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nepotism in piloting around the world. That is not the case here. Um, you don't have to know anybody to come here once you're qualified and take the test and become a pilot. We have pilots from all over the country. We have a Hawaiian pilot uh, that lives in Hawaii and pilots here. Uh, you know, we have a young woman who her dream was to become a pilot when she was a little girl. Uh, she became a pilot here a few years, five years back. And, um, you know, if you, if you are determined and, and you have that as your goal to be a ship handler, uh, we'd like to talk to you. We'd like you to be able to come out and visit. We'd like to be part of your journey. Uh, and because you, you belong with us, no matter when you get here is up to you. And, uh, we're, we're super excited to be, you know, to enable, you know, anybody from any walk of life to come in here and, and live out their dream as being a ship handler. It, it takes okay. a lot of dedication, a lot of time, but it's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. And in the, in the description, again, of this podcast, there's a link to Puget Sound Pilots there. So I, I just want to say thank you to Captain Eric von Brandfelds for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. But. I appreciate you having me here. We go back a long ways to all the stuff we did uh, in AMSC and with you with the port. And uh, okay, nice. To, we're, we're acronym us. we're acronym free AMSC. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Area Maritime Security Committee and yeah. all the other. Uh, didn't we do other stuff with the port? What did we? Oh do? yeah, no. I, I got some things started with a regional port exercises, looking at the economic impact of. There was a big event, and we also did some terrorism exercise planning for, with each individual port. So we, we crossed paths multiple times there. That's what I thought. That's what right. I thought. Well, it's nice to be with you here today, and and appreciate uh, you putting the word out there for the pilots that we're an inclusive organization. Okay. Well, likely many people listening to this podcast had no idea of what a maritime pilot does or the challenges that come with being a pilot. Uh, they're an important part of the shipment of goods. Uh, around the world so lastly a reminder everyone be safe think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster maybe become a pilot you don't have to know someone you do have to know something though <laughs> we talked about and if you like this disaster zone podcast please share it with your professional and social media contacts thanks for listening and be safe Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.